Welcome to Plato's Cave. I'm Jordan Myers, and today we are going to take another step towards escaping the cave by actually re-watching or re-listening to an old episode that I am transferring over from my other show, That's BS. So as I said before, um, this show is basically the new start to anything that I'm doing related to philosophy, and that show is continuing to be um, a political show, a show about society, culture, um, a more laid-back discussion show. So this is a an episode that I had previously done um, on That's BS, but I think it's relevant to this show and its topics, and so I'm going to carry it over. So here it is, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to That's BS. I'm your host, Jordan Myers, and today I'm going to speak with John Rosen and Ben Burgess about uh, varied topics, but we, we began... Um, and, and really stayed with the topics of free will, uh, moral responsibility, determinism, and compatibilism. Um, and I thought this was a super interesting talk. I loved listening to both of these guys. Um, and for, for so for the order of events <clears throat> for this episode, um, uh, John and I were able to begin speaking before Ben could join. Um, so what I'll do is I'll splice together... Um, the beginning where I speak to John about his bio and his background, and then Ben will join us and we'll all three uh, debate the issue of free will and moral responsibility. So thank you for watching, and here's the episode. So I think you know that I finished my, doc- my doctorate uh, a few years ago at um, UMass Amherst in philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had years and years of sitting around the seminar table hashing these ideas out, and you know, I love dialogue. In fact, that was the reason I started this discussion group was so that I could pull, because I'm not teaching right now and I, and I missed it. So I thought I could pull a bunch of smart people into a group and we could have great conversations about things. And, and that hope uh, came to fruition in some respects. Unfortunately, running it has been, um, <laughs> let's just say, a bit, a bit trying. Um, but I miss it, and um, you know, uh, opportunities like this uh, to to speak with somebody uh, about topics that I really enjoy um, are are fun. So I appreciate um, you seeking me out. Uh, the free will topic is is something that I've been kind of obsessed with for mm. a long time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. It's fascinating. Yeah. It really is. And, and you know, I'm, I'm always surprised and kind of um, endeared almost by how much interest people take in this topic of all philosophical, con- uh, philosophical topics outside of perhaps whether or not God exists. Mm. Um, and people get really angry about that one these days. Gosh. Mm. But people get really angry about the free will topic, too. Really angry. About oh, that. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> livid about that one. Yeah. They, yeah, they really get bent out of shape about it. It's 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 incredible to me. Um, and you know, my position is, uh, I think by far the least popular. I mean, it's the people get the most angry about my position. I think. That, that's do you a, do you think there are more like hardcore libertarian free, people about free will than uh, hardcore determinists? I don't know. I I would maybe reverse the popularity of that. I mean, I, I obviously don't have a huge sample size, but um, so I think the uh, I think the uh, the natural impulse before you've thought it through, mm, and I'm already starting to to sound like a jerk, even even think that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think the natural impulse is um, to be libertarian. 
I think the natural impulse is to believe that we are um, uh, unmoved movers. Uh, you know that we are that we are the sort of first causes of our behavior. That we initiate uh, causal chains for all for all intents and purposes. Um, you know, I think that the natural impulse is to think that what the way we live is up to us in some profound and meaningful way. We're not puppets. We're not being strings aren't being pulled. We're not an outcome or a product of our conditioning entirely. There's there's some little homuncular agent within us that is in charge. I, I think that that is an incredibly intuitively appealing view. Mm-hmm. The uh, the ghost in the machine. There's some French saying for it. Uh, something that's machina. It. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. Yeah. Um, that's weird that you say that actually um because i so i i actually read i think in your letter exchange you talked about how um you know you had a a fairly religious upbringing and then god was sort of the belief in god was one of the first pillars to fall and shortly after that the free will free will pillar fell as well um and that that just I I kind of I smiled at that I was reading it earlier today um, because I I had a really religious upbringing um, also uh, evangelical Christian oh, upbringing like, yeah yeah and and um, you know I guess like the doctrine of free will is obviously central to that uh, belief system and it was one of the uh, it was one of the first uh, sort of <laughs> brow furrowing moments for me I guess was well hold on like I, I thought that you said that. Um, God was uh, all powerful and omnipresent across all times. So, how does He not know what I'm like already going to do? Y- you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, Before yeah. I do it, I know what you mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but it's funny. I guess the, the funniest thing about that is I I was working with the assumption of well, I have to have free will. You know, <laughs> just because subjectively it feels like it. Therefore, I can't really make sense of God in light of the fact that it feels like I do. Which you know, I I don't. Uh, by any sort of I, I would align with you almost down the down the row um at this point but i just i think it's funny that that um discontinuity was what actually started the uh the disbelief process right so for you the disbelief process was uh if i if i understood you correctly um on one hand you're told that god is all powerful and all knowing if god is all powerful and all knowing then where was the break that happened? Well, it, so we also have free will, but right. if God is all powerful and like all knowing and exists across all time, how can there be anything that's outside of His control? I.e., something that we can exercise free will over. Right. Yeah, right. And it just you know that didn't seem to add up. Right, but so you know there is the the standard sort of Christian response to that to that question, right? Mm-hmm. It's the problem of evil. Oh, yeah. And God gives us free will so that we can uh, commit sins, so that there can be good, so that there can be redemption. So this is sort of like, I always sort of read that as a sort of like interesting moral experiment where where God creates the world and then he creates these these creatures and he could, he could um, exercise complete control over them, but he's curious to see how they would behave if he gave them a little bit of freedom. Mm-hmm. And uh, It's like a kid with ants, yeah. <laughs> yeah something like that. Um, but uh, I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I, like you, you know, this was a, a seeming contradiction that, um, that just didn't sit well with me, and, and something had to give. Uh, yeah. So then a lot of things started to give. Mm-hmm. 
Good, good. Um, thanks for uh, thanks for joining the call. Yeah, thank you for having me. Sorry, uh, sorry to come on late. Oh no, no worries. Um, we, uh, John and I, started talking about things that were tangential and sometimes a bit related to the topic. So. I'll have a late night splicing together different clips of, <laughs> of what we talked about. But now, now that you're in the call, um, I think we should we should bring it around to um, the topic at hand. But I think John and I have talked enough about his um, background for people to be familiar with him. Um, but if you could just give us uh, give the audience your potted bio. Okay, sure. Uh, so I'm a uh, philosophy professor at Georgia State University. Uh, perimeter college um i uh i wrote a book called give them an argument logic for the left um and uh i i write regularly for um for uh for jacobin magazine uh and i i do a segment on the michael brooks show called the debunk and everything i've just mentioned more or less has to do with politics but uh but i i also do um uh, do write a little bit of apolitical popular philosophy stuff, mm-hmm. uh, uh, including some articles uh, for uh, REO magazine about the free will debate. And, um, and I've done, um, and I did a letter exchange with, with John about this at, at, uh, at letter wiki. Um, and, uh, and so actually our mutual friend, uh, Ryan Lake, uh, is uh, uh, wrote a award-winning dissertation on uh, on the topic uh, on the topic of free will, uh, and and he has views that I find I find sort of congenial. But he doesn't really write stuff for popular audiences, <laughs> so I, I kind of you know maybe think of myself as the uh, as the the uh, the, uh, the 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 Huxley to, to Ryan's Darwin or the. <laughs> Ingles to his marks or some less pretentious, you know, uh, <laughs> some, some admirable henchman of his, <laughs> some admirable henchman. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah. So thank you both for, uh, for doing this. I, um, I came into, I came, uh, became familiar with both of you through listening to Iona's podcast with both mm-hmm. of you. Um, and in the spirit of not repeating that, um, sure. all of the ground you guys covered there, I would uh, recommend that people go listen to that, um, maybe even before listening to the rest of this. And I will link to it um, in the show notes below. Um, but to to kind of summarize that, um, and please jump in and correct me where I, where I go wrong on anything, but... Um, after listening to that, I take uh, John's position to <clears throat> to basically be one of an incompatibilist about free will and determinism, which is to say that if uh, determinism is true, that means that we don't have free will in any important sense, and determinism is true, um, which means that basically, you know, not that we can necessarily predict it, but that things are uh physiologically predictable and not some spooky ghost um in the machine that that operates us irrespective of prior physical causes and because that is true therefore free will does not exist in any meaningful sense and ben i take you as saying um that no john you know you're kind of missing the point a little bit here um it's it's not really about physical um causation it's it's more about um 
a compatibilist sense of free will where yes everything is um, fully determined in a you know a Newtonian sense maybe or or just some sort of a physical sense um, however free will exists in some robust way and we can still um, hold people responsible in a robust way does that jive with both of you uh, I think that's that seems mostly right uh, I mean I, I I would say that um, uh, I would I would say that you know whether or not uh, I think it, I think probably in both cases I think we would say that um, that those descriptions are accurate although also whether or not determinism is entirely true might be um, slightly beside the point right so like it, it could be. Um, you know, because of course, I don't know which like interpretation of quantum mechanics is right or anything like <laughs> yeah. that. You know, so, yeah, I don't either. So, uh, so, but like, but in fact, I, I think one of part of the appeal maybe of of compatibilism about free will and determinism is that if um, is that it it allows us to to make sense of free will and moral responsibility in such a way that it doesn't like hang on a thread waiting to hear back from the quantum physicists about, about issues like that. And my understanding of John's position is that, is that similarly he'd say, I think, right. Uh, you know, that the, that even if, um, you know, even if determinism is not entirely true, whatever, something like that is close enough to being true that we don't have free will. So again, it's, it's not that he's, um, it's not that he's staking his position on some particular interpretation of the physics. It's just that nothing that seems to be likely about that would, in his view, validate free will. Yeah, I would say that that, that pretty much pretty much sums up my view. The only um, part of your description, uh, Jordan, that gave me a slight pause um, is um, when you were talking about um, de de determinism with respect to uh, a purely physical de de determinism, okay? Because I, I want to make sure, you know, there are some people who may think that mental events are exceptions to somehow physical events, and I, I want to make sure that um, you're lumping all mental events into this kind of deterministic framework yes, as yes. well, because I'm going to argue that um, even, even if we enter into this sort of mysterious domain of mental activity, there are still going to be... Um, the activity that's going on there is still going to be, for all intents and purposes, uh, deterministic. So I just wanted to put put that out there. Outside yeah. of that, yeah, I'm on board with your cool. with your description. Yeah, no, I, I wasn't trying to sneak in dualism okay. <laughs> into any of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, because mind you, there are people. Yes, I, I think it's a quite common view that there's some ex something exceptional about what goes uh, goes on in our heads. Mm -hmm. um, where it can't really be predicted or, or it's, it's, it's sort of detached from any kind of, um, uh, you know, deterministic framework. Yeah. I mean, I think that's probably one of the biggest and most, in, you know, uh, differences between what counts as like common sense and academic philosophy and in like the world <laughs> at large. Right. You know, that like, uh, that I think probably, if you did like an opinion poll with searching enough questions to figure out what people thought about this, I think probably most people do think that there's like a mysterious ghost in the machine. Um, that, but, um, but in, you know, most academic philosophers who argue about this stuff, you know, with the, 
exception of a few people, you know, who are, um, you know, who are religious or whatever, you know, with, but like, which is also a minority position because again, these, these things mm-hmm. are culturally disconnected from each other, uh, are by, you know, but by and large, I think everybody agrees. Yeah. There's no, there's no mysterious ghost in the machine, right? Uh, dualism is false. Uh, this sort of spooky contra causal free will, uh, that certainly doesn't exist, mm-hmm. right? You know, that um, if, but the question is then, uh, given the kind of way that we are able to, you know, reason and deliberate and make our way through the world, right? You know, is is that is that all the free will that we would want? Is that enough for, for moral responsibility or maybe even like existential meaning or something like that? Or... Um, or is this just an attempt to to uh, put the toothpaste back in the bottle conceptually? And really, really, once we realize that to, that uh, once we realize that it's all mechanistic and physical, really, free will is just an illusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So okay. So on that note, um, Ben, if you could, can you tell tell me what when you say you believe in free will, what exactly are you saying you believe in then? Yeah. Good. So. Um, I think that there, you know, because there are lots of different senses in which we can talk about control, like self-control or autonomous action, uh, that, uh, you know, your, your actions are being controlled by your desires or your desires are being controlled by your higher order desires or et cetera. And at least some of these things we clearly can have, even if determinism is true, which is why I like a phrase that you used earlier when you were describing John's position, which is where you said there's no interest in kind of free will that's, that's true, right? So uh, what I take the debate to really be about is about whether the kind of free will that we can have given determinism is an interesting kind of free will, is the kind of free will that would ground, uh, that would make sense of like of moral responsibility in particular, right? I mean, that's the, mm-hmm. there might be some other concepts that we're interested in. We're interested in free will, but I think that's probably the big one. Uh, and I think, yes. Um, and I could, I could talk about the sort of theory of free will that seems most plausible to me, but I, I, I want to, the reason I want to talk about start on that more general level is that if I'm being completely honest, um, I'm much more sure of the general position than of any particular, uh, mm-hmm. that of any of any particular version of it, right? I think there are some like sort of general considerations about thinking about um, moral responsibility and things like that that I, I I find very you know that I find very compelling. But um, I think you know to put my cards on the table as far as the sort of theory of the sort of specific theory of free will that I would endorse, uh, I I would say that. Um, that w- that the kind of free will that's that's interesting that matters that's enough to ground more responsibility in the rest uh, is something like uh, being reasons responsive. In other words, being able to uh, understand and be at least somewhat moved by reasons for and against different courses of action. To be able to you know to deliver you know to engage in a process of deliberation. Uh, I don't want to overstate it because, you know, we don't want to say that, like, you only have free will if you're really smart and you make good decisions, <laughs> right? You really? have to have a triple-digit IQ to have free will, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think there are, like, 
I think there are some like compatibles views of free will that almost get there, right? You know, that's not that's you know that's I that's I think not plausible, right? You know, I, I think what yeah. we want is a theory that says that uh, most people, at least some of the time, right, are actually responsible uh, for their actions. But I think we could do it. Um, I think we could we can do it with uh, with all of that. Um, one thing that's going to be very hard that I know that John is is going to push back on is, uh, you know, when you start kind of thinking about cases where somebody is, um, you know, like the kinds of cases that nobody thinks are free will, right? Where like somebody is hypnotized or, you know, they're drugged or, you know, the thought experiment mad scientist puts a chip in their head, right? All those things. Okay. A clever philosopher can construct a case like that that fits what I just said, right? You know, that like where there's still some deliberation going on, the person understands the reason. It's like a very subtle kind of chip in your head that just sort of like nudges you towards one course of action, not the other. Um, so so what do we want to say about those cases? Uh, and, and I want to say that the question is who's the reasons responsive agent who owns the decision, right? So... I, a, a very rough analogy is like if I um, if I find like a you know if I'm just like walking down you know down the street uh, and and I find some piece of property and you know it's like oh this looks good right you know and I want to take it then it could be that unbeknownst to me right I think I'm the rightful owner of it because I think it was abandoned property but unbeknownst to me this is like you know, somebody's, uh, this is somebody's couch that they're planning on using again. Right. (laughs) You know, so there's a rightful owner and I'm that's, and it's not me. Uh, and so I would say that in cases like the mad scientist and the hypnotist and all that stuff, there's another reasons responsive agent who has a better claim than me on my decision that they're, they're the rightful owner of their decision. And I think the point that that John is going to press from his perspective is that there's going to it's going to be very uh, tricky from my perspective to to say okay here's the cutoff point right here's where like on the spectrum of cases going from like hypnotism on the one end to just like ordinary you know one person kind of influencing another's behavior in various ways on the other end where's the cutoff point whereby it's mine right that is what I'm going to push back. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. is precisely, that is precisely where I'm going to push back. Um, so go on. <laughs> you're anticipating my pushback. So if you're that's the question, I mean, if you want to jump right into that right away, great, because that's my pushback. I mean, that's sure. I have two. I have two fundamental pushbacks. Sure, but the sure. more specific one is is precisely that. Uh, just, just to just to um, kind of repeat what you just said, um, yeah, we can talk about these sort of sci-fi manipulation cases, right, where we right. Uh, have the, the chip planted in the head, uh, the evil demon, or we have, you know, more mundane uh, but no less bizarre cases like hypnotism. But then right. we have very generic, commonplace cases of people growing up in controlling families with, with overbearing parents or you know, extremely religious families or, you know, extremely ideological families where we just assimilate everything that's sort of poured into us from our parents and from our culture. And, you know, 
if you want to preserve some robust sense of moral responsibility, um, I, I, I think, yeah, you're going in the right direction um, within, within the co compatibilist framework, within that argument, um, you have to be able to um, have some interesting description of what it means for an individual to quote unquote own their own reasons response mechanism. And indeed, you know, this is, this is precisely one of the conditions that um, uh, Fisher and Revisa uh, offer in their uh, articulation of their compatibilism. It's, it's a chief feature, this ownership of our response. If someone else has determined what our, you know, reasons, re reasons response mechanism is, if it's not us that's responding to reasons, then it stands to reason that we're not responsible. Mm -hmm. So we need to be able to figure out what it means to say that there is an agent who is us, not someone else, that is responsible for the way he or she or they is responding to reasons. And, uh, and I don't know how to do that. I don't know how you will do that. Okay. Uh, so I am going to do two things, I think, here. Uh, one is that I'm, I'm going to just quickly, because I do think it's an important point, and um, I mean, obviously, I'm sure everybody who's listening to this has listened to the four hours of our previous uh, discussion <laughs> that they were just instructed to. But just in case there's anybody who didn't listen to that. Sure, <laughs> those lazy people, yeah. Uh, I'll try to briefly summarize what I said there, but I, I, I also will try to move the plot along uh, and, you know, and advance the story by... Um, by offering one other possible response be besides that one, right? I, th I think they're both legitimate, but you know, maybe, you know, maybe if you find one uninteresting, you'll find the other interesting. Mm -hmm. So, um, the my uh, possibly uh, my possibly uninteresting logic nerd answer, which I actually which I actually think is an important point, uh, is that uh, lots of uh, important concepts uh, are, are vague that this is, this is the, this is the nature of the beast. Um, that I, I think that we wouldn't be able to get through life without, without understand, you know, understanding lots of, um, lots of concepts that have uh, vague cutoff points in borderline applied cases. Um, you know, baldness, right. Is an obvious case. You know, we all know, you know, we all know what it is to be bald. We all know what it is to not be bald, but good luck, uh, specifying exactly the number of hairs mm -hmm. uh, that you need to have uh, to be not bald, uh, and uh, of and there are lots of controversial questions in the philosophy of language about how to think about borderline applications of vague predicates. But one lesson that I think nearly everybody agrees on is that it's illegitimate to go from we're not quite sure where to draw the line to there's no real distinction or there are no clear cases on both sides, right? So I'm tempted to kind of think of, uh, of this, of the spectrum here as being, you know, as being such case, right? Like that in the sort of sci-fi examples, it's very clear who and why the alternate owner is. Um, and in, uh, in the more mundane you get, right, the closer that you get to, um, uh, to most ordinary cases, that's that's less and less um, that's less and less the case. That uh, that even if um, 
you know, even if you say, okay, there's a certain amount of cultural, you know, brainwashing maybe, right, you know, but it's, but there doesn't really seem to be the case that there's one, um, that there's a clear candidate, right, mm-hmm. for, okay, here's the person who's, who's the real owner um, of, uh, of this, of this decision, uh, decision making process. Uh, and so the, the mere fact that, uh, the, and we the fact that like just ordinary determinism uh, seems if you have compatibilist intuitions about this to be okay, mad scientists don't seem to be okay. We can, you know, clever people like John can construct cases that are interestingly in between, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the mere fact that we don't know where to draw the line doesn't mean that there's no real distinction there. So that's one possible avenue of response yeah. that I was. Hey, pushing- hey Ben. Yeah, sorry. I don't I don't want you to lose oh. the second point, but could I could I ask a question about the first one? Absolutely, yeah. So so with that sort of almost like spectrum of free will you laid out. Does yeah. so is does that mean that there is sort of a paradigmatic case on either end of that spectrum? Like I think we can all three of us can pretty easily come up with someone who has no free will. That's basically a robot, right? Like I build a computer, yeah. I open up Word on a computer and I type whatever I want to type on the computer. The computer sure. has no free will in that case, right? Sure. Um, what? So what then is your idea of the other end of the spectrum? Yeah. What is the so, perfect... Good, yeah, good. Yeah. So I think this is why uh, it's important to keep in mind what the co- dialectical context of this is, that this is a objection to compatibilism, right? So... Uh, nothing I'm going to be saying in response to the objection is going to be an argument for compatibilism, right? You know, like in other words, the reason that this is an important distinction is because to my mind, the paradigmatic example of somebody who is acting freely is um, is somebody who just in the normal course of life uh, is, you know, our only reason, the only reason that somebody could give to think that they're acting unfreely is that we can trace you know, that we can trace their action back to a chain of cause and effect that goes to, to before them, which of course, if you're an incompatibilist, you think that that person mm-hmm. is still unfree. Right. Mm-hmm. But, uh, the sort of one of the kind of core intuitions behind compatibilism is, is that surely that, you know, person in ordinary circumstances is free. So I would say that, um, that, uh, so like, um, uh, Derek Paraboom is a skeptic about free will who makes this argument. He's got like a a version of it with like four cases or five cases or something. Mm-hmm. And on one end of the spectrum is the mad scientist uh, who's um, who's like, you know, putting a chip in your head and whatever. And on the other end of the spe- spectrum, uh, there's just like ordinary physical determinism. Uh, and uh, And then he has interesting in between cases and and he makes the argument much like john john just did right you know so um mm-hmm. so so i think that one uh one response which i think is legitimate is to just accept that that um that ownership um might be like baldness or a lot of other things that you know that we that um that we can uh, that there are clear cases on both ends, but there's there's a there's a gray area that's really and stubbornly gray, right? Mm-hmm. But that's okay, right? That doesn't mean that we're not entitled to make pronouncements about the two ends. Uh, another line of response, which is worth considering, 
um, is the one made by uh, Philip Swenson and I'm a bad person. I'm not remembering the name of the <laughs> co-author. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I can't give them credit where credit is due. But uh, they have a paper about this where they suggest that um, most most of the time when we talk about uh, we talk about free will and moral responsibility, uh, we talk about it as what we're interested in is like the threshold for being responsible at all. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, so we talk about this as kind of a binary thing, right? You're responsible, you're not responsible. Uh, but surely a lot of our intuitions about moral responsibility are degree intuitions that like, we, you know, if you if you think about um, lot like you know if you think about cases uh, like I think these are examples they give in the in the paper, like somebody agreed to pick you up from the airport and they don't do it, right? Mm-hmm. So um, and then we we think about somebody who uh, their reason for not doing it was that they were just like you know they got caught up playing video games and you know they just decided not to, right? Mm-hmm. You know they, they didn't mm-hmm. break their streak. Uh, <laughs> And, um, and then we think about somebody who's like, uh, who's in the, in the grips of depression, uh, and they have a hard time motivating themselves to, to get up and, and go do things that, that, that or or even being like physically detained or something. Yeah. So the physically, so actually that's good, right? Because those, yeah. Now we've got three cases, right? So uh, the the physical detention case, the video games case, and the um, and the depression case, and and we think that uh, okay, the depression case, the the detention case, they just couldn't do anything about that, right? That's 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 out of their hands, right? We we shouldn't. Uh, they're not blameworthy, maybe at all, for that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the Video game case, we think they're pretty robustly blameworthy, right? You know, they they um, to uh, to borrow a phrase from John from our exchange, you know, uh, they they might deserve a little bit of vindi- of uh, was <laughs> our vindictive wrath uh, <laughs> for, for that, you know, a, a thorough chewing out. Mm-hmm. The, depre- the depression case, uh, just to, at least in terms of initial intuitive appearances, I think um, before we worry about how to make sense of those. I think we might think it's not that we don't think that they're at all responsible, right? You know, that they're worthy of any blame at all. But I think we might be inclined to think that they have diminished blameworthiness, right? You know, it's not that, like, because after all, um, like, if they thought that they, it wasn't just a matter of picking you up from the airport and then you'd be really mad, right? Mm-hmm. You know, but like, your life was in danger. Surely they would have gone in the car and, you know, they would, they would have gone to, to get you. Right. You know, so it, it's not, it doesn't seem to be as out of their hands uh, as it does in the detention case, but it does seem like there is this somewhat mitigating factor that like you can't, you know, maybe fully blame them because, uh, because they're undergoing clinical depression and one of the neat things about the reasons responsiveness paper, Phil, Philip Swenson and this other guy point out, uh, is uh, is that it could maybe make sense of that because uh, reasons responsiveness comes in degrees, and so uh, maybe and in just in, you know maybe we can say something more interesting than just all right. There's 
you know, there's a threshold here somewhere. We're not quite sure where it is because oftentimes with interesting concepts, we're not sure where the threshold is. Maybe we can say that, uh, that even when the threshold has been met, um, we could distinguish, we might say something more interesting about these cases. If you agree with their view, and I'm not a hundred percent sure I do, but like, it's an interesting view then you might say that, um, that there are, there are different degrees of blameworthiness, you know, that like in some of these cases, people are more blameworthy than others. Uh, and certainly once you get to the science fiction cases, you have like zero blameworthiness. Right. Do you mind if I, uh, jump yeah, yeah. In your- yeah, please. First of all, um, I'm really glad that we just, we kind of seized on these three cases pretty early on in this discussion and, and Ben that you, you took it where you did because okay. now, now we're in the territory, uh, that gets really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, um, the way you laid these cases out and the way you sort of characterized your intuitions about these three cases captures my intuitions about these three cases. And I think um, one's uh, sort of immediate response or immediate intuitive take on these three cases, um, I think generally speaking, people will have the same response. If you're physically detained in a room, Obviously, you can't be <laughs> responsible if you don't show up. Um, if you're really depressed, well, yeah, you, you're probably not. It de- let's just say it depends on how depressed you are. If you're clinically depressed, um, yeah, you're not going to hold. But if you're just sort of feeling sort of down that day, maybe you. And then you have the video game, the, the kid or the adult uh, sitting <laughs> in the video game, you think, well, that person clearly um, uh, deserves a little bit of a little vindictive wrath. So those, those were my intuitions. Mm-hmm. When I, when I be, before I started really exploring this problem, um, I thought those intuitions tracked reality. And even now, after having studied this territory, my intuitions still may present themselves in the same way. Um, and yet I check my intuitions. Because I think that if we really try to specify what it is, what it is that's going on in the head of, say, the video game player that renders the video game player more genuinely worthy uh, of uh, more genuinely uh, mer- uh, uh, deserving, meriting or deserving of, of, mor- of moral desert here, um, it, it, it becomes difficult to specify what exactly it is. So we, we have to somehow get into the head of the guy. Who's, or the gal who's playing the video game and specify what is it exactly. Now, if, if, you're, going to, if you're going to focus on reason's responsiveness, right, then what is it precisely about his reason's responsiveness that renders him more culpable under these circumstances? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I really do think that this becomes very, very tricky. And I'm not sure, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that there is an interesting principled way to capture um, what it is precisely that renders the video game player more morally culpable than the person who's stuck in the in the room, and I would be curious to hear how you would how you would spell that out, or even take a take a stab at it. Either of you guys? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, no. Uh, go ahead, Ben, because honestly. That that was it's similar to the question I was going to ask you is I, I don't really understand um, 
you know, the, the answer to John's question, which is why I, I, you know, I actually agree with John on this one. Um, but I, please go ahead. Sure. Uh, so I think that, um, we do think normally, uh, and I think regardless of our views about, about free will, right. I think that we think that, um, that there are such things as uh, as rational capacities, right? I, I don't take that to be what the um, what the argument is about, right? In other words, uh, it's it's not. Um, I don't think that the argument that the compatibilist and the incompatibilist are having about free will is about like what's true about these rational capacities. I think the argument is about. Um, whether these sorts of rational capacities give us um, a free will, kind of free will with these further interesting properties, right? That we'd be, it would make, make sense of making us, you know, have um, moral responsibility and all that stuff. And so in particular, I don't think that a point in dispute is that, um, is that something like uh, depression uh, can diminish our rational capacities, uh, and so if if that's something that's that's common ground, you know, that we all agree on that part, uh, then uh, then I think that we're we're at least on our way to to seeing how we can make sense of the idea that the um, that the uh, depressed uh, the depressed driver uh, is uh, less culp- culpable. Uh, than the video game, uh, the video game playing um, uh, driver, because 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 we don't we don't think that uh, being um, that we we don't we don't we don't think that like really being on a, you know really being on a roll you know or yeah. thinking you know thinking that you're going to beat your high score uh, is um, we don't think that that is that that hinders the normal functioning of your rational capacities to you. I mean, maybe you can say there's a little dopamine hit you're kind of addicted to with the video games or whatever, but I don't think we would at least say that it hinders your uh, rationality nearly as much as depression does, right? So I think the real question then is um, is where it should have been in the first place, right? Which is that is this capacity to reason and deliberate, you know, between different courses of action in such a way that we um, that we understand uh, that we you know that we can understand why something is a reason to act in a certain way and we're, we're at least somewhat appropriately moved by that in a range of cases is that the sort of thing that uh, that grounds responsibility I think that's really what's gonna get the debates gonna be about and and one other quick if I can just one um, mm-hmm. just one little footnote uh, because I think that if if you if you don't spend a lot of time thinking about this, something that might not be obvious uh, is that I think on, on any remotely plausible view of free will, most of the time, of course, we're not sitting around like the, the thinker statue, right. You know, (laughs) deliberating about what to do in in every case or whatever. Right. You know, most of the time we're on some kind of hazy autopilot because like, that's the only way we can function, you know, as, as humans. Uh, so I think that uh, to the extent that you want to call most decisions that we make uh, free, that's got to be in some sort of indirect way, right? You know, that's the so uh, even the most even the most sophisticated versions of the um, 
the spooky account of free will, right? Like Robert Kane mm-hmm. is um, is a uh, is a what you know. I would disparagingly you know use that word spooky, but you know, libertarian is the word they use. Has absolutely nothing to do with political libertarianism. Separate issue mm-hmm. uh, that like. But even somebody like Robert Kane, who has a sophisticated version of libertarianism, right, says that, yeah, most of the time we're just operating on this hazy autopilot. The question is, how did the autopilot settings get set, right? Mm. And, and to the extent that the autopilot, you know, to the extent that we are maybe in control of some larger thing because we make certain decisions at certain points that kind of determine how we're going to act from that point onward – then maybe we can incorporate some of the hazy autopilot settings in uh, into um, into free will that we can be responsible for those. Um, we can be responsible for those, even though we're not really deliberating them, uh, you know, deliberating on them in the moment. But I think it's important because uh, I think that's an important clarification because I think I think that um, some of the things that some people think are like paradigmatic examples mm. of free will don't strike me as being even particularly plausible candidates uh be like you know like they say like uh like sam harris has a video where he says like uh, he starts out by asking his viewers to um to to name to pick pick a city right you know like and so yep, yep. essentially what he's asking <laughs> is report what pops into your head and i think no matter what your view is on the stuff I'm arguing with John, I mean, nobody thinks that you're in control of what pops into your head at any given moment. Right. right. Yeah. Right. But sorry, but this is precisely where I want to jump in. Mm. This, mm-hmm. is, this is where this becomes <laughs> to me. So, um, so look, a, a standard approach to this problem, an approach that say Christine Korsgaard takes or Harry Frankfurt takes, or some of these other people take is that, we can become, so to speak, sort of the pilots of our deliberative process that that when we're deliberating, okay, so basically, these are accounts that are trying to locate the agent within kind of the um, the theater of our of our thought, the theater of our deliberation, right? So um, guys like Velleman, uh, uh, to some extent, Frankfurt, Course Garden, uh, uh, Richard Moran, they all suggest that the agent, in some sense, can intervene or participate in the deliberative process. Okay, to be to be more precise, there's an idea that the video game player, okay, around yeah. us, he's sitting there, he's playing the video game, he knows he needs to show up to pick up his friend, he's approaching a top score, he's about to beat his re- his record, <laughs> he he gets he gets the dopamine rush, all these things are oh man, I I need to pick Ben up. Oh, but what would Ben think if he knew I was this close to breaking my record? And what would my other friends think? And I was going to post this on YouTube and I could get a lot of hits from this. So there's this, there is this activity going on in his head, right? Uh, There's a competition of desires, of beliefs, of intentions, of plans. There's all this stuff that's going on in his head. And there are certain thinkers who think that what the agent does the agent has some kind of final word in this whole process, or he can enter into the process. It's, it's kind of like a uh, an, um, a, a ship condu- a ship captain, or or like a mm-hmm. symphony conductor, and can run it or author it in some important sense. 
And that's where a lot of these people locate genuine agency, at least the kind of agency that is required mm. for moral responsibility. If it's the case, <clears throat> what's going on in our heads isn't, as they say, up to us in any important sense, then it seems difficult to understand where we're going to ground uh, moral responsibility. If it's a passive process that's happening to us, again, it becomes harder to locate the ground for responsibility. So what a lot of people say is it's not passive. We're doing something autonomous or we're doing something authoritative. And my question to you, Ben, would be how do you how would you characterize what is going on in the mind of somebody who's undergoing this deliberative process? Do you see it as an active or as a passive process? Hmm. Uh I am not a hundred percent clear on the significance of the distinction, and to try to turn that into a more interested answer, I would say that um, that what's you know it's certainly it's certainly not going to be the case on any view that I would endorse that there's this like intangible you know kind of um, Cartesian, you know, ego that's 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 like uh, that's that's separate from all of the more like identifiable mental processes, right? You know, it's it's not that there's going to be like that. There's you have your desires, your preferences, your your reasons, your etc. And then there's this other thing, right? <laughs> you right. know, uh, so so the and, real Ben, yeah, 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 the, yeah. yeah, real Ben, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, you know, re real Ben just is all that, right? So uh, so the question is then, like, when you talk about like uh, you know presumably a big part of what we're talking about when we talk about free will uh, is the idea you know of um, of like self-mastery that there's that there's a that like there's some sort of sense in which there's some particularly privileged part of all that mix right that yeah. is call it that is uh, dom that is um, like an author is is calling the shots to other parts of it right so right. like uh so so you mentioned frankfurt earlier and and he's he's a good he's a good jumping off point here because he has a very like he has a relatively simple view so it's so so it, it could help maybe thinking about how frankfurt thinks it works can be a jumping off point to thinking about more complicated views yeah, yeah. Hey, hey ben yeah. Sorry, can I interject again? So the one thing that I I, I wanted to get at with what what yeah. John's question was was so, you know, John was asking you, do you see yourself as this sort of like, are you more active or passive as this captain of the ship? Um, well, the thing that I guess I'm I'm trying to understand and and struggling to is yeah. how how is the captain <clears throat> in any important way not merely kind of a ship himself almost in a way do you know what i mean like if you look at who the captain is um you know he may you know the ship is kind of at sea and it's being buffeted by the waves and maybe you know the sheer skill and and mastery of the captain can save it from beaching itself right but so we would attribute the ship's course to the captain there because there were other factors but he was the deciding factor now the thing that i can't seem to get past is yeah well is there that same analogy just within the captain himself are there a lot of forces that be are being buffeted around but there is one thing that you know did tip the scales on he turned the wheel this way 
But is that cause attributable to him in this agent-based way that, that you seem to be hanging your coat on? Yeah. Uh, so, again, I, I, I do, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, like, I'm not going to argue for a robust captainship distinction, right? You know, okay. that, 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 you know mm-hmm. that, that's, that's certainly not anything I'm interested in doing. Uh, I would, um, so, but I would say that we don't want to be too quick to to jump from uh from from no you know separate intangible part mm-hmm. uh to there's no interest in sense in which when we act autonomously a certain part of our mental processes is asserted itself over others and that might be what we're interested in right so um so like a view that's um that's very simple um, like, like, like a, like really, really simple view of free will, uh, is, uh, is, uh, David Hume, who is himself the source of a lot of this, uh, a mm-hmm. lot of the skepticism about captainship distinctions. Right. And, um, and he has a lot of smart stuff to say sort of surrounding this, but I think that like, this is something nearly everybody today would find unsatisfying, but at least it's a good starting point. Uh, is that he basically says in the inquiry concerning human understanding that like free will is just kind of your desire, you know, like like your well passions is his word, but it's like your desires, your preferences, right? Sort of calling the shots for your behavior, right? But um, I think that uh, nearly everybody today would find that unsatisfying because we think that like somebody who just sort of has a desire and acts on it obviously <laughs> is is certainly not going to be our idea of of what should really count as free will so then uh harry frankfurt uh takes a long step away from this uh his paper free will and the concept of a person he says well uh you can have lower order and higher order desires by which all he means is just you can have desires for things right i have a desire you know to have a sip of coffee uh, and then you could have desires about those desires, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that like, um, uh, no, I don't want to, you know, I don't, I don't want to act on my desire to have that sip of coffee because I'm, you know, trying to cut down. You know, so I'm, I'm, <laughs> You've had enough, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've had enough, right? You know? uh, <laughs> um, there's a, there's a, uh, it's actually. A philosophy graduate student who I, I won't say what institution or when or anything like that because I don't want to leave any identifying breadcrumbs back to this person mm-hmm. uh, who this makes me laugh every time I think about it, uh, who's, uh, who's under doctor's orders, he stopped drinking coffee and in the most unhelpfully literalistic interpretation of doctor's orders in the history of medicine – uh, he started substituting a little bump of Coke every morning with his <laughs> coffee, <laughs> you know, so on over the course of the day. Uh, Talk about reading in between the lines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It gets a professional hazard, but, yeah. uh, but uh, you do, but if you, so, so Frankfurt thinks that, uh, that what we're, what we're really looking for, we look for free will is that our higher order desire that we're acting on our higher order desires that like when our higher order desires and our lower order desires are in conflict, right? The higher order designers are winning and that's your, your will, right? Is your higher order 
desires. And he does say some really interesting things uh, to justify this. Like for like, just to give one small example, he says uh, one of the things that we're looking for in free, in a theory of free will is for example, something that would interestingly differentiate human behavior, uh, you know, human decision-making from, uh, from non-human animals uh, because one of the sort of core intuitions about moral responsibility we have is that like, you know, when my cat knocks over a glass, right. That, you know, that it's not his fault in the way that it would be, you know, when a person did it. Right. Cause, and he says, well, the sort of spooky contra causal version of free will doesn't really satisfy this requirement because, Hey, to the extent that we can say, for all we know, humans have this ability for all we know, cats do right. You know, for all we know, cats, you know, desires can somehow mysteriously override causation or whatever. Um, whereas this sort of like fact about rational capacities, you know, that we can, that we can, uh, you know, that, uh, some people under some circumstances, you know, can assert their higher order desires over their lower order desires. That does seem to be, as far as we know, cats aren't psychologically complicated enough mm-hmm. to have that, have that kind of distinction. Um, and so the kind of thing, the kind of view that I'm somewhat attracted to, that I'm fairly attracted to, that I've, I've been defending, right, you know, is uh, is the is the view that, okay, even higher order desires, we're, we're sort of getting warmer, right? But that's not quite what we want. What we want is to think about our, our ability to, kind of how we're forming those desires in the first place, our ability to to reason, to deliberate between options, all that stuff, you know, that it's not just a mental coin flip, right? You know, that like we have reasons for doing these things and those are what's moving us. Um, And I know, I know I've been talking a lot, so I I will try to shut up after this, but I I have, but one, but one um, sort of general thing I I was hoping for maybe uh, for, for this discussion, because so far the way that this has gone is, has been kind of a, a more concise version of the previous discussion, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, but, but I, I would point out that one interesting feature of the discussion we've been having is that we've kind of been assuming that the default is no free will until you can sort of come up with an account that it has all the I's dotted and all the T's crossed <laughs> of exactly how of exactly how free will works. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I want to point out there's something a little bit strange about that assumption, right? Since, since, since we all do normally pre philosophically think that, you know, that, uh, moral responsibility is a thing, you know, some people are at fault, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, and I think one, one thing that I would urge that it might be interesting to go in the, in the remaining time that we have left, um, is to sort of maybe pull back the camera a little bit, and think about what are the general reasons to think that we don't have free will. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Good. Um, I want to address it. Jordan, do you mind? Yeah, no, no, go ahead. Uh, Ben. Uh, so I will address your question. The question you just asked first briefly, but then I want to jump back into the mosh pit. Okay. Um, So my my straight up response to your question about, you know, why we might think we don't have free will. Um, I let's just say I, I have two um, two quick responses. One is going to be a straight up metaphysical response and another one is going to be an ethical response. Good. The metaphysical response is that 
Um, when we uh, retrospectively look at our actions and our behaviors and explain why we behave as we do, we tell causal stories. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that we explain behaviors on the basis of causal stories seems to undermine the proposition that we're behaving freely. Now, I know, I know compatible, uh, on the compatibilist account, there's, there's no problem with that. Uh, you, you think that a, a causal story and freedom are compatible. But I think that our intuitions actually, in that respect, are not compatibilist. Because when often when we explain, well, why I did something, we often explain our behavior in a way that seems like, like I really couldn't have done otherwise. I mean, and we often explain other people's behavior. Well, you know, if you really knew them, you'd see why they did as they did. So we often offer a person's history uh, as a way of not only explain, explaining, but in some sense exculpating um, their behavior. And John, you think it's telling that that story makes sense to us, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I mean, this was, you know, when, when Kant brings up the, uh, Immanuel Kant brings up the uh, contradiction between free will and determinism, he's appealing to conflicting intuitions. And I think the intuition that, uh, we, that we appeal to causal stories to explain behavior in some sense threatens the idea that... Um, that we behave freely. I know they don't threaten your intuitions, Ben, but I do think they threaten other people's, and they threaten mine. The other um, response I would offer to your question as to why we think um, we might have not have free will is that I think that the denial of, of, of free will, um, or the, you know, there's, there's this great um, uh, French uh, aphorism that says, to, to, is, to know all is to forgive all, right? Mm -hmm. To know all is to forgive all. And I really like this uh, idea. And the notion is that if I knew everything there was to know about you, um, then it would seem clear to me that however you behave, no matter how atrocious, was in some sense an inevitable, if not incredibly, you know, a natural, if not inevitable product of your upbringing and your culture or, or your cultural upbringing, your psychology, your conditioning and so forth. So. The ethical response that I would offer to the question about, you know, why we should not believe in, in free will is that I think that the denial of it, in some sense, lends itself to a more sort of, let's just say, compassionate approach to human beings and human behavior. You know, we can move away from the kind of vindictiveness or, or, or punitive approach and have a more kind of, um, what do you call it, um, we move away from the retributive kind of justice to kind of reformative justice. So the, the metaphysics is just to appeal to this causal story that I think uh, contradicts uh, our, our uh, intuitive sense of freedom. And then the ethical response uh, or the ethical intuition, which is just a, it, it, the denial of freedom can lead us to a more compassionate um, outlook or approach to human behavior. Now I can see, pro you know, I can come up with uh, counter arguments to both of those. Uh, which you may want to do. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it is I think it is important, and and the reason is too because, you know, to my mind, we're trying to do two different things here, and both are both are worth doing, right? You know, but I, I think it's worth separating them, uh, and and one of them is is to think about sort of okay, why in general we think that we either do or don't have free will, and then the other is um, is to is to think about what the best analysis of what free will is right so like in so i would see this in much the same way as um as like epistemology right you know so you think about knowledge 
Um, it's incredibly hard to give a good conceptual analysis uh, of of knowledge. Uh, if you know, you you can find, you know, like if if uh, if you have like a university library that has a really good philosophy section, you know, like you'd be am- amazed by how many shelves are you know taken up by people arguing about how to understand or analyze uh, knowledge. Uh, and even, but. I think, like most people, even though I'm aware that, of course, there are skeptical arguments, you know, we don't really know anything, we could be brains and vats, whatever, um, I am much more sure that we have knowledge than I am about any particular S knows that P, if and only if the following <laughs> conditions are met, analysis of knowledge. And similarly, I'm much more sure that, uh, you know, I mean, I've, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to go to bat, right, for what seems to be the best theory of what free will is uh, that I'm aware of, but I'm much more sure uh, that that we have um, that we have free will, right? So that so I, I think that um, I think that the fact that um, that our our behavior is is caused, right? You know, like I, I'm I'm not very uh, I, of course it's clearly true, right? Like it'd be impossible for it not to be true, uh, but it's um, but I I don't see that as as, as a reason to think that. Um, that we're not in control of it. In fact, I don't think we've been in control of it if it weren't caused, right? I think the question is: right, Do we as the well, do, does it have the right kind of cause, right? Is the is is the stuff that seems to be relevant to responsibility? You know, this stuff about our ability to understand why we should or shouldn't do things and be moved by that and reason about it. Is that playing the right role in the chain of cause and effect? And now I do I do take John's point that this is going to be. This might not be, you know, that this is like might just be a very deep conflict of intuitions. Um, but I actually would really like to at least briefly touch on his second point because I think this is a super interesting. Uh, this is this is a this this is a common belief of uh, skeptics about free will that the uh, that um, that there's this sort of nice. Um, whether or not it's exactly an argument against free will, that there's this kind of uh, that there's this nice sort of moral payoff to denying free will, that we uh, that we become less uh, judgmental or vindictive, you know, we become more compassionate and forgiving. You know, Spinoza talks about this uh, certainly, uh, and uh, or you know, Dirk Paraboom we mentioned earlier kind of pushes the same kind of point. Uh, particularly when it comes to criminal justice, uh, you know, I have very similar feelings as as John does about how we sh- we should have a more humane and reformative criminal justice system. And I think a lot of free will skeptics see a, a connection between that and free will skepticism. At a point, I've tried to push very hard in the last couple of things I've written for uh, REO Magazine is that I think that. Uh, the most humane and liberal view about criminal justice actually not actually requires belief in free will. So I, I'm going to try to really quickly make that case. So sure. you have um, so he, so there are at least three different possible ways of thinking about how to justify criminal punishment. Everything we do when we punish people is stuff that in other contexts it wouldn't be okay to do, right? You know. Um, execution outside of the context of criminal justice is murder imprisonment outside of criminal justice is kidnapping right so uh we so we need some special justification for why it's okay to do it in this context so one kind of justification 
is the retributive justification that people that uh, that we that we're punishing people because they've done bad things and people who do bad things deserve pain, maybe right. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a very popular view uh, of of how you know uh, of of how to justify it. I hear this a lot, you know, like in on in sort of street level context, right? You know, the sort of conversation going on in the background while I'm getting my hair cut or whatever, you know, about <laughs> it's like, oh well, you know, prison's supposed to be punishment, it's not supposed to be nice, you know. <laughs> uh and then uh and that's the view that I think I think John and I both really dislike that, right? And then You can the add sec- me to that too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and then the second view is a sort of purely utilitarian view that uh that the thing that justifies locking people, you know, locking people up, uh, for example, right, you know, is is that it leads to more good consequences than bad consequences. Uh, so, we're, so we're trading off a certain amount of pain, right? The fact that somebody is is undergoing the suffering of losing their freedom for a given period of time for a much bigger payoff in terms of general, like public safety and all this stuff, right? Uh, and then a third view is a mixed view, right? It's a two-tier view that says that on the one hand, innocent people have a categorical right not to be punished, no matter how much good it would do, right? No matter how good the consequences would be, mm. you can't, it's, it's always wrong to imprison innocent people, but that by committing acts that, you know, that, uh, you know, by certain dudes sort of bad acts for which you're morally responsible, uh, it's possible to forfeit this right. But the mere fact that you forfeited that right doesn't add up to a reason to punish you. You know, that, you know that, that, just, that just means you don't have a right not to be punished. And so the actual reason to punish you still has to be a utilitarian reason. And just a quick example where the difference between view number two and view number three would actually come up uh, would be an example, these are like, this is not original to me, although you know, these are classic objections to like utilitarianism, right? Mm-hmm. But like, think think about a case, you know, like it, where uh, you think that uh, that there might be like really horrible consequences if nobody is punished for a given crime, right? You know, that like if, if, you, if you don't find somebody and punish them, there are going to be terrible consequences. There's going to be a riot. Lots of people die. Mm. I think we could actually come up with uh, with a real life uh, version of this. Like think about the cases, the kinds of cases that actually do happen pretty regularly in the United States, where a police officer is accused of uh, of unjustly shooting, uh, usually an unarmed black man, uh, and uh, and if the if the police officer is let off the hook, uh, there's there's a, there's a riot. Right. That, that's that. There have been several examples of this in the last several years. Uh, and imagine that you're, um, that you're on the jury in one of these cases and you, your honest view is that, okay, maybe in lots of cases, you know, the system is bad. The police get away with bad things. But in this particular case, you actually think that they're innocent. Right? Uh, well, if your view of the justification of punishment is purely utilitarian, Mm. then it's very well uh so what's the difference between exchanging some suffering right he's gonna <laughs> be in prison for a big payoff in public safety by avoiding the riot and exchanging some suffering he's going to prison for a big public pay for the public uh, safety payoff of like he won't do it again as if he were guilty 
And it's not obvious to me there's a principal distinction to be drawn there, which is what attracts me to the rights forfeiture view, which I, th I think you can only make sense of if you actually do believe in moral responsibility. So I think, again, it might, the same way that I described John, you know, the John's position and Spinoza's position is a good company. I think that um, I'm not sure this is exactly an argument for the claim that moral responsibility exists, but I think it is at least an argument that you don't get the nice payoff for denying it that uh, that free will skeptics think you get. Right. I, I, I think we might be talking past each other a little bit on here, Ben. I mean, my the point I was trying to make was more about the attitude that one takes toward some kind of uh, legal correction, right? So, you know, Nietzsche has this notion, he calls it the metaphysics of the hangman. Yeah. You know, we, we want... You know, someone does something wrong, and we, because we attribute to them this deep sense of moral responsibility, we call them evil, we, we attribute to them the most horrible motives, we want to see them suffer. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. the punitive, that's the kind of sort of retributive uh, approach that I think springs from a deep faith in moral responsibility that, uh -huh. and I'm not, I'm not actually even sure that that that's your notion, to be honest. But I do think that the sort of pre-reflective, intuitive view is, you know, that guy is an evil bastard who did a terrible thing, and he deserves to, to be, you know, to suffer a lot of pain. Um, now, if we thought that that person, you know, had someone had spiked his drink, uh, or, or had suffered horrible abuse as a child, and was just acting out of trauma or pain, then our feeling of uh, our retributive feelings would diminish. I think, you know, it would make sense that the, re the retributive feelings would diminish in proportion to the extent to which we understood that they couldn't help what they had done. So, what I'm gesturing at is a kind of, you know, once we have taken into account the various conditions that have given rise to their behavior, we're more likely to understand, forgive, uh, or, um, um, yeah, understand or, or forgive their behavior. Again, there's that, that French phrase to understand all is to forgive all. Um, so we take a more, um, a gentler approach to or correction. So I'm really just talking about, um, the attitude that we take, whether it's going to be vindictive or compassionate. And I do think that, the sort of rejection of this robust notion of free will lends itself to a more a more compassionate uh, approach in general. Yeah, so I, I I agree with what you say about the sort of pre-reflective view, right? You know that there's that uh, that we have that we're we're angry at people in ways that that certainly um i mean honestly i think the pre-reflective view might just be incoherent anyway right you know but they have but they but but certainly it certainly it seems to one of the things that it assumes is moral responsibility no doubt about that uh and um and that the um uh and i think even as far as the sort of psychology of our of um that like might I think as far as the psychology of many individuals as they like start to think about this stuff I think what you're describing is probably accurate, but what I'm interested in is the reflective view, right? You know what's what you know like like on reflection, right? Uh, what is our view 
about um, about uh, just punishment and what makes it just, right? Well, right. Yeah. And, 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 and and I think, and my view on that is that um, is that on reflection, um, the most sort of humane and liberal view of criminal of criminal justice actually requires belief in autonomy and moral responsibility. Otherwise, we can't make sense of the crucial distinction. We can't make sense of why it is right. that we think that there's this great moral significance to innocence, I which still is, think is what underlines, like when Blackstone says that, you know, it's better to... Um, uh, it's better to, you know, for, for 10 guilty people to go free than for one innocent person to go to prison. I don't think that we can make sense of why without making that distinction. So, so, the, so the, the, this, the distinction I would draw here, and I brought this up in, in previous discussions, is that we can distinguish between what I would call moral responsibility and moral accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, moral accountability is just uh, we can uh, attribute... Uh, a particular act to an individual because that ab- that individual performed the act. Joe uh-huh. robbed a bank. Um, uh-huh. Did he really rob the bank? Yeah, he robbed the bank. Do we have to <laughs> hold him accountable? Yeah, we have to hold him accountable. He broke the law. So, but, but, but uh, why do we have to hold him accountable? Uh, because he's the kind of person who robs banks. Okay, and, good. And- so, 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 so we're making a utility calculation. We're saying that Bob going to prison is going to result in fewer bank robberies. Yeah. And so even though he doesn't deserve go prison, blah, blah, we're willing to do that. The point I'm, I'm making is that there's no way to draw a principal distinction between that utility calculation and the innocent cop should go to prison uh, to avoid a riot calculation. Yeah, I guess I'm, I guess I'm, <laughs> um, I think we're talking about two different things. I don't think we are. I think we're talking about the same thing. Well, <laughs> I think they're parallel but separate. <laughs> um, okay. So, look. So let me just spell out my view briefly here, okay? So when it comes to sending Bob to jail for robbing yes. the bank. Yes. On one hand, it's, gonna, it's going to address um, the problem of making sure we, we have one less Bob walking around in the streets who yes. rob a bank. Right. What it's also going to accomplish, hopefully, uh-huh. is if he goes to jail and if he's you know, denied his freedom, something might happen in him over time, maybe, if he's treated properly, if he's, you know, if he, God knows what kind of, uh, you know, discipline he's going to get or corrections. Right. He may learn... Mm-hmm. that maybe he shouldn't rob banks anymore. There could be a change in him. So you might say, Ben, that, that just attributing him that capacity to learn, to develop a new kind of reasons response pattern, uh-huh. is to attribute to him a certain amount of moral responsibility. You maybe might do that. I, 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 so so I yeah. might say that, but I'm not sure that's relevant to the point here. So I think that because I think everything you're saying from your perspective, because you don't believe that that's to attribute moral responsibility to him. So from your perspective, what you're talking about are all the classic utilitarian justifications for legal punishment, prevention. He won't be he won't be out there robbing banks, you know, 
deterrence of others, rehabilitation, that, you know, he'll stop. When he gets out, he won't be the kind of person who robs banks. Yeah, so what am I missing here? So so all of that are all ways of saying that that his, even though there's nothing about him uh, such, you know, such that he deserves it, uh, that there's no justification like that, that we're willing to make the trade of of Bob suffering his loss of freedom for these utilitarian good consequences. And what I'm saying is that if that's enough to mm-hmm. justify imprisonment, mm-hmm. then you're stuck in these counterexamples like uh, like the innocent cop, you know, being uh, being railroaded to avoid the race riot. They have a that because that's the same thing. There's no principal distinction between the two. Okay. You're saying you're, you're you're saying that you know because if the whole point of moral accountability, right? Mm-hmm. If uh, if 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 the moral accountability talk ultimately just reduces to utility calculations, then there's no principal distinction between the utility calculations you're making in uh, in the uh, in the Bob the bank robber case and the utility calculations that you're making in the innocent cop being locked up to avoid a race riot case. Okay, and how does this? How exactly is does this come to bear on? On, on free will, because if you believe in free will and hence moral responsibility, then you can make sense of the moral significance of innocence such that even if it would have good consequences, innocent people have this categorical right not to be imprisoned that you can that you that guilty people can forfeit, you know, by committing bad acts for which they're responsible yeah i'm, I'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to spend some time with that yeah. I, I'm, I'm familiar with that it's an interesting argument i'm gonna have to spend some time and think about it from what i from what i understand the i think the real i think what we're trying to get at here is the difference between how you both might answer the question irrespective of consequences is there still something about this character bob that we want to not pragmatically deal with but to actually hold an attitude with respect to him, like to, to put it in Strassonian terms, um, you know, I, John and I might think that, look, the only reason why we would want to punish this person is for reasons that have actually really almost nothing to do with him. I mean, they do, but they don't really. Um, they're, they're more for society and for him maybe when he gets out, is he a better person or not? And if you remove those there's nothing left. There's no reactive attitude in Strassen's terms. And then Ben, are, are you, you're still, from my perspective, seeing something there. That's how yeah. I'm, I'm seeing the difference here. So, uh, so I, I realize I'm, I'm slicing the concepts very thinly here, but the distinction that I, that I want to, that I want to make is that I agree with you that if we remove those things, we have no reason to punish him mm-hmm. that we're in agreement on. But, uh, the point that I want to emphasize is that if he were if he were innocent, right, then we have this non-consequentialist reason not to punish him, right? We have this reason mm-hmm. to respect his right to be free. Uh, that, and I think my position is that we can only make sense of the moral significance of that reason, right? If uh, if we think. Uh, if we think that the that um, that there's that uh, that moral responsibility exists, because you can only forfeit this moral right uh, to uh, to freedom 
by uh, by committing uh, certain kinds of bad acts for which you are morally responsible. In other words, it has to you know it has to be really your fault that mm-hmm. you did it in order to remove this uh, this kind of default right. Uh, yeah. Right to be free. That that'd be my position. So so I know one of you has a hard stop here, but but what's what's the uh, the attitude version of that though? Where so I think John and I see it as yeah. if you if you remove um, you you know you shed light onto the situation, you see all these pieces of information about him. There's no there's nothing left by which we have a um, there's no reasonable position to stand to hold a reactive attitude to blame him in some non-consequentialist sense. Yeah. So, so I don't, uh, I don't think, yeah, I'm, I'm the one with the, the hard stop. I'm, I'm keeping an eye on, okay. Okay. Uh, on, on the, uh, on the chat, uh, window, uh, for my wife to let me know that she's, she's done with class. I can come pick her up. Yeah. Uh, I'm not quite sure how talking about philosophy on a podcast way weighs with the <laughs> depression, video games. You know, but, <laughs> wait, those, those, wait, sorry those, for jumping in, you guys, and I, I do want to hear Ben's answer. But how much time do we have? Um, so, so, so why don't we? Why don't I try to answer real quick? Because and then because this is a little bit vague, right? You know, but so um, and then uh, and then we'll go like. Five minutes after that is is that good? Yeah, yeah. I did have one one final question for Ben here uh, that I didn't get. Okay, okay, so so uh, so 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 real quick, uh, the point I would make uh, is that I don't think it's useful to think about like reasons to hold reactive attitudes, right? You know that it's it's not that like it's not like you should feel anger. Right at at somebody. In fact, I think that if there's a should there, that would just be like the kind of utilitarian should or something like that, right? You know that they have like it'll maybe do some good. But like I don't think that like the person who like immediately forgives the wrongdoer is like doing something wrong, right? You know, because no, 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 you should be angry about that. Uh, the analogy I really like uh, from uh, Ryan Lake, we mentioned earlier from his dissertation. Uh, is that um, is that the sort of reactive attitudes that seem to be tied to moral responsibility? You know, guilt, blame, etc. It's not um, it's not like that when we feel guilty for doing something wrong, we're punishing ourselves, or you know, when we're or that like blame should be thought of as a sort of low grade version of like something you know that they deserve, right? You know, we should be dishing out to them. It's just that these are the attitudes that fit. Um, you know, like that, that, that being at fault for something that guilt is the, is the attitude that fits that the same way that like sadness might be the attitude that fits romantic heartbreak, right? It's not that you're doing something really, it's not that you're doing something wrong if you bounce back quickly, right? It's just that this, this is the sort of attitude, attitude that, 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 that fixes it. So I'm not really interested in saying this is how you should feel, um, you know, but but I, I I do think that there's a there's a natural there's a natural fit between the the situation and the feeling. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I'm I'm sorry. I was I was waiting for your your question. Oh, okay. Um, my question sort of harkens back to the video game player, mm-hmm. um, and I guess I this might be a a, a futile line of questioning but i'm gonna i'm gonna press it anyways 
Um, cause I, I know that you, you're sort of balking at making any really clear cut principle distinction between, um, what it is that renders somebody genuinely morally responsible and not, uh, you know, we, we kind of circle around this and finally we get to this notion of owning one's reasons response mechanism. But then when it comes to distinguishing cases where one either owns it or doesn't, and then I kind of push on that. You say, well, it's, we can't really come up with any principal distinction between owning and not. It's more of an intuitive thing. Um, so then, uh, then or, or I, put, I, I think we know what factors matter. I think what we don't know is how much of it it takes. I think there's going to be a vague cutoff point. Well, so my question to you, just to get a better sense of where you stand on this. So, you know, I, and I think I brought this up in the Iona um, podcast. Now, now you know the, the Phelps family, um, mm -hmm. the, right? Okay, so these are kids who grow up in a, you know, radically um, religious uh, ideological family. Now, um, if I were to ask a grown-up, uh, a grown-up, uh, uh, someone who's grown up in this family, and if I were to ask, have you really thought, the, the, these beliefs through have you really reflected on your actions have you know have you read frankfurt do you, have you analyzed your higher order desires have you really considered yourself objectively they're going to answer every single one of those questions resoundingly yes i have and they're going to defend every single one of their, you know, yes, I've, it, believe me, I haven't been hypnotized. You know, I've read this, I've read this, I've reflected on this, I've reflected on that. I, you know, I, this is the kind of person I want to be. I endorse my desires. I have, I do. So would you say that a person like that um, is, in some deep and important sense, morally responsible for their actions? Yeah. So I would say that their description is totally beside the point, right? That has nothing to do with anything that they have a, that like, it's not having free will and believing that you have free will, uh, are as utterly separate, uh, as, um, you know, having a million dollars in your bank account and, you know, or, or merely believing that you do, right. You know, that they have a, that it's, it's not, um, it's, it's not a question of one's own attitude towards, towards one desires. I know there are accounts of free will like that, but, I reject those accounts as much as you do. Okay. Um, so, uh, as far as as far as the member of uh, of the Phelps the Phelps family goes, uh, that um, I mean, I think that the I think that when we were talking about it on on Iona's podcast, uh, the assumption that we were both making, uh, at least for the sake of argument, you know, was was that these that this is like a an interesting um this is like an interesting gray area case right you know that this is like positioned appropriately between the mad scientist with the uh, the chip in the head and just like ordinary day-to-day -day, you know um right. your actions are determined but there's no special reason to think you're unfree um and and you know running with that you know Running with that assumption, right? You know that, that this is this is like an interesting, uh, interesting in between case. Uh, then, then I'd 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 say that uh, that if if it does turn out, right, that once we fill in more and more and more details, right, 
about the actual psychological backstories of these people and, you know, whether they have actually ever thought about it, what that process was like, you know, how, you know, et cetera, that, that, that it, it could be that, um, that it's, it's just, that we're, um, that it's, that it's one of these things where, okay, is this, re- you know, is this person reasons responsive enough that it could be that this is such a hard case as we fill in all the details that I just have no idea. Right. You know, that it's, it's, it's like the, you know, it's like the spectrum of uh, like, I think grand priest somewhere has a case about um, uh, vagueness where he has like a, there's a sort of series of, um, of slides that go from like clearly red to clearly green. And, you know, there's a, and you have like 5,000 or something. So you have like all kinds of like murky ones. And maybe this is one I'm just staring at it and I'm staring at it. And I have no idea. Right. right. Is, yeah, is that right. red? Is that green? Right. Yeah. Uh, then, um, then, then I would say that again, uh, I think that it's it's possible that the Swenson move could help us get a hold of this. That you know that maybe reason you know that maybe moral responsibility comes in degrees, and maybe this is diminished but not extinguished. Uh, but maybe this is so close to the threshold for being morally responsible at all <laughs> that I, I just can't tell. Uh, and then my answer, which which I which I know you find very unsatisfying, maybe if we talk a third time, <laughs> you know, maybe I'll come up with something that you'll like better. But uh, but I, I do think it's correct as a matter of logic is that uh, just because I can't for the life of me tell whether this slide is red or green, that doesn't mean that there isn't a real or well defined red green distinction. Right. So this is, I mean, as long as you and I engage in this conversation. <laughs> I really think this is the line that the two of us are just going to keep butting up against because what I want to keep driving at again and again and again is coming up with some clear way of demarcating, you know, uh, the line between what it means to own one's reasons response mechanism and not. And, you know, it's interesting that the two people who have most, you know, thoroughly elaborated upon this notion, Fisher and Revisa, They themselves concede that they, they they haven't completely specified this, that there is a gray area that they can't, uh, there are cases where they just cannot sufficiently define what the terms are in order to uh, establish the case one way or another. So, um, you know, my intuition suggests that um, uh, I don't think that there is ever a case when um, we're going to clearly be able to um, capture what it means to own, in some interesting uh, autonomous respect, one's reasons response mechanism. You think there is a way that we can do this. I don't think there is. Now, you know, uh, so the difference between us lies there. I think that's, that's a difference. And um, it, it's possible that it'll just never be, we'll just <laughs> clear it up. Um, and, but it's interesting to me also, and, and then I'll, I'll shut up after this, but it's interesting that we have such strongly different intuitions about this problem. So, you know, you know, I've, you've read a bunch of stuff. I've read a bunch of stuff. You've thought this through. I've thought this through for whatever reason, we've ended up with different kind of kind of default settings about this problem. And, you know, that in and of itself is a kind of interesting 
uh, state of affairs. You know, why is it that I wound up with this particular uh, attitude and approach? And why is it that you did? It's, it's interesting to me. Yeah. Um, well, look, I, Ben, I know you got to go, so <clears throat> I'll let you uh, I'll let you both go. But um, I want to say in in the spirit of not leaving everyone um, unsatisfied, I no matter if you guys ever agree or not, we're very satisfied uh, with this with this talk. So um, thank you both uh, so much for doing it. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, yeah thank you. Yeah. All right. Um, I'll leave notes to like all of your guys's bios and everything in the show notes below. Um, but for everyone listening, thank you. And um, thank you to both of you again. And uh, I'll talk to you later. Thanks, Ben. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode and learned something from it. And if you want to support my work and what I'm doing, you can do so by supporting me on Patreon. You can go um, to patreon.com forward slash Jordan Myers and donate um, on a monthly basis and receive rewards for your donation. Um, again, that's J-O-R-D-A-N-M-Y-E-R-S. And uh, the links will to everything will be in the description below. If you can't monetarily support me, you can support me in other ways by liking this video, uh, commenting on it below, reviewing the show on iTunes, or sharing it with a friend or with your Twitter followers. Um, you can also email me at Plato's Cave Podcast at gmail.com and follow me on Twitter at Jordan underscore C underscore Myers. And if you want, um, you can check out my other show called That's BS. Um, it's a more discussion-based show with me and friends. Uh, I mentioned it at the top of this episode. So um, if you enjoyed this, please consider supporting me on Patreon. And as always, thanks for listening.